Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. You know Tim Robbins is the star of films like Mystic River, The Shawshank Redemption, The Player, and Bull Durham, TV series like HBO's Here and Now and The Brink, and as the writer and director of Dead Man Walking, Cradle Will Rock, and Bob Roberts. But you may not know that he's also the founding artistic director of a Los Angeles theater company called The Actors Gang, which presents socially conscious plays and provides theater training in underserved communities and prisons. Their latest production, which he wrote and directed, is called The New Colossus, and it is about to embark on its North American tour. I'm very pleased to welcome Oscar winner Tim Robbins to our show now. Hi. Thanks, Lenny. Thanks for having me. You've had a very successful career as an actor and director in films and TV. Has theater always been a part of the mix for you? Yeah, it's how I started uh, when I was growing up in New York City. I uh, was You went to Stuyvesant High School. Stuyvesant High did School. Did they have a theater program? Well, they did, actually, and it saved my life. Uh, I, I directed uh, a production when I was a sophomore. This is the first time I directed and did one when I was a junior and a senior. You know, I wasn't a particularly great student, and I had a great English teacher named Thomas Dolan that encouraged me in my year to get involved in this thing called Sing. And, you know, it's why I always advocate for, you know, strong arts programs in public schools because, I, uh, you know, if it hadn't have been for that, I, I might have dropped out. I might have, you know, been another statistic. And now you work in prisons as well, a, a way of having people turn around their lives. And in a uh, public school system mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, yeah. We're in 15 public schools. But didn't you found the Actors Gang soon after you graduated from UCLA in 1981, along with some of your fellow acting students like John Cusack? Well, John wasn't in UCLA, but he found us a couple of years after that and did a, a show with us. Uh, Jack Black was at UCLA. Um, we were a bunch of punk rockers that wanted to do theater that um, mattered and uh, that reflected the, the kind of energy and excitement that we were experiencing at punk rock concerts. And so we did this play called Ubu the King. Uh, mm-hmm. Ubu Wa. Ubu the Alfred Jerry twisted, uh, unri- unbridled id of mm-hmm. Ubu. Uh, and uh, it was a big hit, uh, and that was the start when, when we, we started out. Has it been operating continuously since then? Yes, yeah. So is it something you return to when you're not working in film or TV? Well, it's it was always my lifeline. I was, you know, um, I started earning a living uh, in around 1982, and uh, it was a great way to pay for the theater, but, uh, but it always was a reminder for me uh, that there's more. Uh, there's more growth uh, to, for me as an artist, and... Uh, you know, when you get into uh, being a working actor, it's often very frustrating because you're, it's just basically other people's scripts and you have to do what comes along. And I always had the gang to go back to, and I would tell my agents when I was starting out, I, I'm going to take three months, four months off to do a play, and they would think I'm crazy because, mm-hmm. no, you got momentum now. I'm like, no, I, I, need to, I need to get back in the lab. You know, I need to figure out some new ways to express some pretty good actors like Michael Caine say they take any job that's offered. What about you? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, I have a, a bottom line. I think once I became uh, well-known, I, I, I stopped doing certain kinds of things. So what's the, the company's mission? Do you concentrate on works that are uh, or have a, a socially conscious message? Well, we do... 
we do theater that that we're interested in and that we we know that our audience will be interested in uh, it, it for example we've been doing uh, last year we did a Dario Fo play called Accidental Death of an Anarchist. It was a huge success. And next, uh, in two weeks, we open a, another Dario Fo play, uh, Can't Pay, Won't Pay. Uh, these are, you know, you, you see from your audience. Your audience tells you, you know, what they want. And uh, so we try to create stories. Uh, when we're doing originals, we try to create stories that reflect our community and the concerns of our community. But we always approach it knowing that theater is a shared event and we enter every project with a great respect for our, our audience and, and what they want. You know, when I Do you have a theater? Yes, uh, in Culver City, mm-hmm. at the Ivy Substation, beautiful beautiful theater. Um, you know, when I was starting out, I had a good fortune to study with this man named George Bigot and he said he, I remember this lesson very uh, clearly. He said, "Listen, when you step out on a stage, never assume that anyone in your audience could afford the ticket they paid for <laughs> And always assume they paid their last dollar for it. And they had to walk five miles to get here because they couldn't afford the so bus. So you got to give your best. Everything, everything, with deep respect for the audience. Your new play, The, the New Colossus, bears the title of the Emma Lazarus poem that's inscribed on, on the base of the Statue of Liberty, uh, the one that includes... The lines, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Did the current administration's harsh policies on immigration get you thinking about that poem? Actually, we were we developed the piece during the Obama administration. We had already noticed this rhetoric, and you know, particularly around the Syrian crisis, um, trying to define these uh, poor women and children that were trying to get out of violence, leaving their home, uh, trying to survive, trying to say that, well, these are potential terrorists. And it was such hateful and unhealthy rhetoric that we started talking uh, amongst ourselves as a group. Who are we? You know, what is our story? And the actors started researching their own uh, families, stories of migration. And, you know, what winded up is we have 12 actors telling uh, the story of 12 different immigrants and uh, in 12 different languages from 12 different time periods, from 1868 to, to 2017. Yeah, so the uh, you have sl- things from slaves, you have things from the, from, uh, the 30s. The story and, of the great northern yeah. migration after the Civil War. But, uh, but it all is reminding the audience that most of us, unless we're Native Americans, are just a few generations removed from our immigrant ancestors. Yes, and what happens at the end of the play is quite extraordinary because after this long, arduous journey, uh, the actors ask if they can come in, and the audience has to decide. And then after the show... Uh, some uh, some have bad backgrounds. Some uh, well, of, of the actors. Yeah, well, the the characters. Um, one. Yeah, yeah, uh, and <laughs> she always gets in. <laughs> she gets in. Yeah. The, the the former Nazi. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the show, I come out and I I say, you know, we want we want to hear your story. And so I asked the audience first if there's anyone that is descended from an indigenous population. And a couple of people raised their hand, and I asked what nation. And then I asked if, if anyone was descended from people that got here against, that were brought here against their will, and African-Americans raised their hand. I asked, do you know where from or what year? No, we don't. 
which is a, a great crime, an original sin of this country that we uh, eliminated a, uh, people's memory of a culture. And then I ask, uh, are there any refugees in the audience? And some people will raise their hand. I ask, where from, what year? Any immigrants in the audience, where from, what year? Then sons or daughters of immigrants or refugees, and more hands come up. Grandsons, granddaughters of immigrants or refugees, more hands come up. Great-grandsons, great-granddaughters of immigrants uh, or refugees, more hands come up. Where from, what year? And before you know it, the entire audience has raised their hand. And, and it, it reminds us of a shared humanity, that we have a shared experience, that, that all of us, all of us in this country have gone through or our ancestors have gone through. And I shouldn't have said except Native Americans because they also came here from Asia. Yes, but a slightly different immigrant. <laughs> yeah, experience. but it still is an immigration. Yeah, but uh, but here's the thing: what 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 I find really exciting about this thing, and I'm really excited to bring it out into America. We're going into eight cities all across America. Not New York. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. In a we're moment. going to Schenectady, and, and and eventually we'll get to New York City. But you know what 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 we come to understand over this uh, over the years we've done this is that there's something extraordinary that we don't think about, which is our shared DNA. That the idea that there, that we are descended from people that said no to, in a, in their former countries, their homes. They said no. I will not tolerate famine. I will not tolerate religious oppression. I will not tolerate fascism. I will risk my life to make the journey away from this, giving up uh, their home. And then to survive that, first of all, there are people that didn't make that decision that wound up dying, and their DNA is not us. Our DNA is the people that said no and then had the, the courage, the strength, the perseverance to survive this journey, to wind up on a boat to survive that journey and then to land here and to survive with nothing somehow create a future. That's a pretty extraordinary DNA that we share. That's something that we should be celebrating and that's why we wanted to do the New Colossus because we are descended from people that went through a mythic journey, a hero's journey and that journey is being uh, is happening right now. Uh, people traveling 500 miles on foot to try to survive that. Those terrible caravans. To, to get to a possibility of a different life. That's extraordinary. And, you know, that, that's the hero's journey. One of the characters is a child acrobat from Malaysia. What's her story? Incredible story. Uh, the, she is uh, the, uh, playing her mother, uh, who, uh, w w whose father was this magician who had a uh, American flag tattooed on his arm? He was uh, he was an American citizen actually, and they were touring through uh, Malaysia when the Japanese inva invaded, and so they were able to escape. The entire family was able to get uh, on a boat and wind up in San Francisco in 1946. Did uh, were, were there some uh, cast members who hadn't known their family's histories before they worked on the piece? Yeah, and that was interesting too because they wound up uh, having conversations with their mothers and fathers and grandpa grandparents. Yeah. Now yeah. we have those commercials on television for that ancestry. But, yeah, it's you know, yeah. there's a lot of people that didn't tell the story mm -hmm. to their kids because they when they landed in America they said, "Your Americans learn English. That is mm -hmm. your future." Let's leave the past behind. And so a lot of the actors had to go through these really intense personal experiences with their family to understand what it was that, that, that propelled the journey. 
Another is a Finnish woman. Do, do people need to escape from Finland? Yeah, there was an uh, invasion of a Russian army that uh, was very dangerous. Uh, that uh, well, The women in particular who were alone had to escape a, a um, you know, sexual um, oppression. At uh, some points, all the actors speak at the same time, but in different languages. How difficult was that to direct? Um it's an orchestration, and it's and what happens is we've, we're trained in a way that you hear snippets of it. Uh, it's how they modulate their voices. That's uh, something that they're very good at, and uh, we've worked on. Uh, you hear a lot of English as well in in, in the uh, in the piece, um, but at times they speak in their uh, in their native languages, and uh, there's translations, uh, super titles above the stage. Um, well, the first time we did it, though, interestingly, there was no English spoken. It was before we had the story of uh, the uh, freed slave that was um, traveling up north. Did they have to learn the languages? No, they, they all had them. That was the whole, the whole point, was that I was working with people that English was a second language. So then you added English with the freed slave. Uh, yes. Is is the play still, or it, well, we have to call it a performance piece rather than a play, don't we? Well, I think it's a play. I mean, it's a lot of physical uh, movement, a lot of um, waiting, which is part well, of the immigrant a, experience. Not a straightforward narrative. N- no, not in the first act, second act, third act, no. But it does uh, have the visceral power of a play. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio at 99.5 FM. I'm speaking with Tim Robbins, whose latest project is a theater performance piece called The New Colossus. Um, you want to... I want to tell people where we're going to be, if that's you know, okay. I was going to ask about that, but okay. Well, uh, we're going to start in Charlotte, North Carolina, January 28th at the Knight Theater. Uh, Schenectady, New York at Proctor's Theater, February 7th and 8th. Detroit, Michigan at the Music Hall, February 14th and 15th. Seattle, Washington at the Moore Theater, February 20th to 22nd. Durango, Colorado, Community Concert Hall, February 25th to 26th. Iowa City, Iowa, Hancher Auditorium, February 29th. Folsom, California, Stage 1, March 3rd and 4th. And Nashville, Tennessee, April 9th to the 11th at the James Polk Theater. But not New York. Is it just too expensive to bring a production here? We haven't had the right offer yet. We had an offer that uh, didn't make sense. Uh, so uh, eventually, hopefully, um, you know, a place like BAM or Public Theater or St. Anne's Warehouse will invite us. So in. how can New Yorkers see it now? Um, travel to Schenectady. <laughs> I see. <laughs> we'll see how no, it's there. not available on YouTube or any of those no, no, not services. Yet. No. Um, is it... Um, easier to work experimentally in theater than in film because you don't have the same kinds of financial pressures? Yes, uh, and this has been the great gift of the Actors Gang is that I haven't had to ask permission to develop new pieces. Um, You know, it's a limited scope that you can do on film. I've been really lucky to be able to tell the stories I've told on film, and I continue to have the desire to do that. It's just that... um, you know, in the downtime between when you're working in the industry, it's awfully great to be able to walk into a room with like-minded people, with a company of actors that have been there for a while, that know how you work, and to really delve into some really interesting subject matter and 
do it in a theatrical way that's entertaining. In Los Angeles, you had a world map at the theater. Mm-hmm. So audience members could mark where their families came from? Yes, and every night the entire world was represented in our little mm-hmm. theater. It was it was extraordinary. You, you, when you saw the map in, in the lobby, you know, the, there's people from all over, from all the, the continents, except not a lot of immigrants from Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> But all the rest of the continents were there. And are you doing that? Are you taking a map with you? On Some the venues are going to have maps in the lobby, and uh, that's exciting, yeah. You mentioned the talkback, so the, the, I guess the maps come up there as yes. well. And, and after, the, after I asked them where they're from, I asked them to share any kind of uh, personal experiences that they've had or uh, stories from their ancestors. And we hear the most amazing things. We had one woman uh, said, I want to tell you about my grandmother. Uh, she was eight years old on a boat alone making the journey in 1906. All she had was a photograph of a family member. That's all. No address. Eight years old, lands in New York, somehow finds her community and this person. Another woman says, I want to tell you about uh, a soldier, an American soldier. He was uh, liberating a concentration camp, private uh, liberating a concentration camp of Buchenwald. And he sees this woman. She starts to falter, one of the women that had been uh, almost starved to death by the Nazis. And he sees her start, start to fall, and he runs towards her. And the sergeant yells at him, Private, you know, stand down. This is not what we're doing right now. He gets to her, disobeys the sergeant, gets to her before she falls, carries her to the field hospital, gets in trouble for disobeying his sergeant, when he's out of trouble, he goes and visits her in the hospital. This woman is telling me this story. She says, that was my mother and my father. And we hear this every night. We hear an extraordinary story, or many stories, of, of, of people's incredible survival tales. This hero's journey, as I was talking about before. Although, as you said before, many families, the older generations, are reluctant to share their stories, especially if they involve difficult experiences. Um, I'm assuming you're hoping to change that. But then there are people like me whose uh, family legends may not be true. And I have nobody, there's nobody alive to check with. Well, I mean, I was told that my grandfather claimed that he was somehow related to the Kaiser, uh, <laughs> which does not seem likely. Well, there's that, a family story of how we got our name in Russia. So it's very, and, and there's no, and then a cousin told me that's not true. Well, how does he know it's not true? Well, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> there's nobody right now. Every my my mother said that uh, her parents were born in uh, in German speaking part of Poland, and then when she died, her birth certificate uh, said that her parents' country of origin was Ukraine. Mm, interesting. Well, and there's why, nobody I can ask. It's interesting why fictionalize it. It's that's, that's a whole other story. But then has you, this led you to look into your own family origin? Well, I, I, I've known it for yeah. a long time. My grandfather did a history when I was younger. Uh, it's uh, it's the 1600s. So one of the first boats, uh, John Robbins, Massachusetts. Hmm. Yeah, they found he found his grave. He did this whole genealogy. So you didn't come over on the Mayflower, but soon afterward. One of the boats after the Mayflower, yeah. yeah. And, then, you know, talk about erased families' histories. You know, what about slave owners? Mm. If you ask people, are, are you descended from slave owners? They won't. They don't know, right? That's been erased, right? 
Apparently. Unless they do that ancestry thing, and uh, people are discovering that their uh, their ancestors came from all over Africa and also all over Europe. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's one of the things that's amazing about the experience of being out with this because we did do some touring in Chile and in Argentina last year. Is that even if they don't express their um, in, 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 the audience, even if they don't express themselves and the microphone that we share after the performance, the lobby becomes this incredible meeting place where people start talking. They start sharing. And it's it's like this little, this huge living room of people, I got a story and I got a story. And I, I just love it. I just, I've been learning so much from, from the experience. So are you at every performance? Yeah. And the, and everyone has a talk back as well. Yeah. You grew up in New York. Your family was in show business. Your mother was an actress. And wasn't your father a member of the folk group, the Highwaymen? My dad was a member of the Highwaymen. My mother was not an actress. Oh. She was a musician. I know that's a, a kind of. Um, I should try to correct that on the Wikipedia or whatever. I think that's where I got it. <laughs> but uh, she, yeah, she was uh, a singer. And uh, and uh, she sang with the New York Choral Society for many years. It was the president of that organization for a while. Um, she was a publishing executive uh, at Ziff Davis. And uh, my dad uh, was a classical musician, uh, was in folk music for a while, and then was, uh, had a group called the Occasional Singers that were uh, uh, did 20th century choral music. Um, you know, they raised us in a, uh, with appreciation of culture, with appreciation of music, theater, politics. Uh, politics. They were progressive Catholics. Um, I remember my mom waking me up in tears uh, to tell me that Martin Luther King had been killed. Uh, I remember my mom waking me up one morning saying, uh, "You should be very proud of your older sister Adele. She just got arrested for protesting the Vietnam War at Antioch College." Um, so, and, and then we had, of course, the neighborhood, you know, Greenwich Village at the time in the sixties and early seventies and all the incredible artists that were around that scene. Did you always know that you wanted to go into show business? Did your parents encourage you to become an actor? Um, didn't encourage me. As, fact, as a matter of fact, I wanted to go to performing arts and my dad said, no, um, you know, Stuyvesant, I got into Stuyvesant. He said, you, you want "Were you to... good at math and science?" No, I wasn't particularly. But uh, I think my dad wanted me to have a good education. I remember him saying at one point, "Listen, I I, I, I hung around with actors, and I got to tell you, there's nothing more mind-numbing than a bunch of uneducated actors." Ooh. And <laughs> and I came to understand what he was talking about. Have you come to agree? Uh, <laughs> Because I've known a lot of smart actors. Well, yeah, and so have I. And, and, Some and, of my favorite guests, in fact, uh, over the years, have, but, have been really been interesting people. They're actor, but, actors who had interesting stories to tell. Yes, and I agree, and it's mostly those kinds of people that are that pursue other education. Mm-hmm. It's not They don't get locked into, I'm an actor, solely an actor. And I think the point he was making... And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's people that come out of performing arts that are very intelligent and know a lot of things about a lot of, you know, different subjects. But I think what he was trying to tell me was, if you if you make the decision to become an actor at 14 and that and you, and you exclude all other education, you're going to limit yourself. And I think he was right because most of the 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 tr- great lessons I learned about acting 
had to do with psychology courses or anthropology courses or sociology courses that 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 widened my perspective the the, the thing that um, i think allows you to grow as an actor is more education and less judgment more less less judgment about the world how can you continue to grow older and still be humble enough to still learn and to still not think you know everything about the world it allows you to become the character you're playing doesn't it because you're not being judgmental you're just becoming that person yes now but when you went to ucla i assume you went because you uh, had decided to become an actor you moved to los angeles mm -hmm. and you've been there ever since no um i well first of all i wanted to be a director and the acting thing happened and then I started making a living at it. And then I realized I could pay for more theater with the Actors Gang and continue to develop my talents as a director. Um, I lived out in Los Angeles uh, for nine years. I started the Actors Gang out of UCLA. And then I moved back to New York, raised my family here. And then I now live again in Los Angeles. Well, you appeared in, on TV series like St. Elsewhere, The Hill Street Blues. You had a small role in Top Gun, um, and you were even Love Boat. So, <laughs> you—that's um, where the work was. Yes, that's where the work was, and Is I was it able. No to, longer. No, it was that I was able to move to back to New York after Bull Durham came out, and and I was didn't have to be auditioning every week. That was your first big role, the pitcher Nuke. Lalouche in uh, Bull Durham. You've said it's your favorite film. Well, it changed my life. Oh. <laughs> I, I, your first I have a family. Role. I have two kids uh, and uh, a bonus child out of that. It's where you met your, your ex-wife, Susan Sarandon, who became yeah. your partner for 20 years. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to uh, take a little break here, and then we'll come back and talk more about the film career. My guest is... Tim Robbins, and this is WBAI New York, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio at 99.5 FM. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these the homeless tempest toss to me I lift my lamp beside the golden Beside 
Irving Berlin singing his the song that he wrote uh, using uh, the Emma Lazarus poem that's at the Statue of Liberty. It's also inspired a new uh, the theater production uh, created by Tim Robbins called The New Colossus, uh, which is touring the, the country in the, the how many months now? Well, we start next week in North Carolina and we go through April. Hmm. Uh, and we wind up in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. So you, so during that time, no film, no television. That's for right. You. That's right. You have been in some pretty incredible films and worked with some amazing people. You've been in three Robert Altman films. Hmm. That's a, the the player, Shortcuts, and Ready to Wear, Preta Porte. Um, do, do you did you learn from working with directors like like Altman? Oh, so much, so much. Um, you know, I. I uh, I did the player right before I directed my first film, Bob Roberts. So, in a lot of ways, the player was my film school, and uh, I watched really carefully. And it Bob, has that famous opening shot that yeah. lasts over seven minutes. Yeah, and Bob was amazing. Uh, you know, I, I he was a hero of mine, and uh, you know, I remember when I met him, I was super nervous and. I was, you know, I asked my agent, what's the, you know, what do I have to do? You know, what, what, what are the sides? What, are, what is the audition going to be? He said, he just wants to meet you, right? Mm-hmm. Went out to have lunch with him. And he was so uh, generous and uh, welcoming. And he said, oh, you know, I said, he said, you know, I like the work you're doing. Uh, I, I said, well, what, what, like in Bull Durham? He said, no, I like the work you're doing in theater. Mm-hmm. I like that you're doing that stuff. And he offered me this role, in, and it was, you know, two months uh, went by, and it, it still hadn't happened. Uh, he was re- trying to raise the money for it. And I got offered this other movie, and I was kind of broke at the time. It was a big mo- money offer, and I, I just on faith, I turned it down. Hmm. And then about a month later, the player comes together, and we're going to go into pre-production. And I found out much later that Bob had been offered the money with another actor during that two-month wait. And he said, no, uh, I, I, I promised it to this kid, and I, and I want to do it with him. And so he waited. I didn't know that, his, you know, that kind of loyalty. And so the first day of pre-production, I go in there, and he's, he takes me in the office, and this is a hero of mine. I saw Nashville, and it changed my mind about what, you know, movies could be. And the first day, he sits, in, and he sits me down, and he says, listen, uh, you and me, we're going to rewrite this script. And and he viewed me as a collaborator, which was a huge boost in the arm for a young man that was, you know, making his way to be regarded by someone that I regarded in with such, you know, with such reverence. That um, it, it just it gave me confidence. And so when I exited that, when I we finished it, I had the confidence to do Bob Roberts I, and, and I, he, with his tutelage and. Then he would come to see uh, every cut of Bob Roberts. I, I would do. I would screen the movie every two weeks in the editing process. So he gave you advice, and, and Bob came, and it, yeah, he was uh, he was a, a, a really amazing mentor, a great uh, sage, a great uh, influence on me. Some uh, actors really like playing villains, and in the player, you uh, your major film. Well, this was a major moment in your film career, although Bull Durham was the real beginning, and that was a hit. But you play uh, Griffin Mill, the villain. Mm. 
So that was. Do you like those those kinds of roles? I, I really are they are they more fun than the the uh, the really good guy? Well, I I like them both, um, but I never, you know, I have never approached like you know some actors approach it. A, a script and saying, you know, how do I come off? And I want to, I want, I want to be the hero. I never had that. I, I thought, well, villains are pretty interesting too. I just don't want to play anything, whether it's a villain or a good guy. I don't want to play anything in a kind of generic way. I want to find the complexities, you know. So Griffin Mill had a lot of charm to him, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of good things. Bad people don't think they're bad. They, they, they make rationalizations and. They, you know, to for their behavior, and good people don't think, you know, they're bad either. And so uh, there's complexities. There's complexities in all of them. Well, then you start in the Shawshank uh, Redemption with Morgan Freeman, in which you played a man who's in prison for crime he didn't commit. So there you were a victim. Mm, but if he viewed himself as a victim, he never would have survived. Oh. Do you and, see that as a political film? No. I see it as a human film, a, a film about shared humanity, a, a common experience, something that um, talks about hope and the power of hope and the power of persistence um, to build that library, to survive, to to believe that one day there will be a spot on a beach in Zihuatanejo. Um that's uh, that's I believe why that film resonates uh, and is so important for so many people. You've been in a lot of films that have won Oscars, uh, been on best of the year lists. How do you choose the, the roles that you accept? Do you, do you have to love the script or, or the character? For the most part, yes. Um, or is it the director? That has something to do with it too. It really does start with the script. And uh, I try to avoid certain kinds of genre or exploitative uh, themes. Um, I don't. I don't really like uh, violence as entertainment. Um, but it's varying reasons, that, you know, why I'll say yes. Uh, you know, I was in at one point, and I, I I just needed to make money. You know, so that, that's a legit reason. I don't think you know. I don't have any problem with the people that are just trying to pay the bills, make the mortgage payments, send their kids to college, you know, that's if you have to, whatever you have to do to do that. I've been fortunate in, in being able to be financially secure enough to say no to some of those things and also to have the theater company, the actors gang, to keep my creative juices flowing when, when I'm not working in the industry. But you said that your original goal was to direct um, did directing your own films affect your acting? Oh, yes. Uh, it made me a much more disciplined actor. I never was late after I <laughs> uh, directed. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I understood when I fr- directed my first film how how terrible being late is. Yeah, so never again. Uh, for example, when you worked on uh, someone else's film, were you always learning from them? I'm still learning. I'm still learning from every experience. Seeing what choices that they made and, and thinking how you might have done it the same or differently? Uh, well, as as an actor, I'm always very respectful that, of a director because having directed, I know that 
the success or failure of a project has to do with one person's vision and whether that vision is supported. And um, even though it might not be your vision, you have to be humble enough to just give it over. You can't do both jobs. And, and by the way, in any given circumstance, you can have a legit idea that, you know, there's no reason to say that's not a bad idea, but it's not the vision of an individual. And so I stay out of it when I'm acting. And just as when I'm directing, I don't really need to have an actor determining what the vision of the of the pieces. I'd imagine that casting is still important. You wrote and directed Dead Man Walking, for which Susan Sarandon won a Best Actress Oscar. Sean Penn was nominated for Best Actor. And even the music, Bruce Springsteen, for Best Song. You were nominated for Best Director. Um, How did that film come together? Well, Susan found the book. Um, she was working down south, uh, met with Sister Helen Prejean in New Orleans, and uh, brought the book to me and said, uh, I'm interested in acting in this. And it took me a bit of time. I was working on uh, the script of Cradle Will Rock at the time and wanted to do that as my follow-up to Bob Roberts. And then she finally said, well, listen, are you going to read this book or not? And <laughs> then I finally did, and I saw what she was talking about, and I... That happened pretty quick. I wrote the draft uh, that summer. I rewrote the draft in September, and we were shooting it by January. Well, Altman invited you to participate in the writing of a character. Do you in, in, invite your actors to participate in that? I Yes. I wanted to see the actor is the arbiter of truth, not necessarily in the writing of it, but in the rewriting of it. In other words, if there's a line that's not coming out of their mouth naturally, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're a bad actor. So they say, can, can I say it this way? Or, or what is going to make, what is going to get us to the truth? You know, what is the, uh, uh, what is the, uh, trusting that an actor is not being obstinate, you know, when they're having a struggle with a line. It's more that it's not correct. It's not flowing. And so what would you say that would mean the same thing, but is a better combination of words and uh, so you know good directors know that they uh, uh, listen there's nothing better as an actor to go onto a set with a beautiful script and you don't have to make up anything it's it's like you know that's what that's the way Shawshank was The, the script was so beautifully written and that's a struggle, you know, and, and the, the last thing you want to do is have to struggle, you know, when you have a certain limited amount of hours to, to get the truth in a day. And uh, but there are times when as a director, I, I'll see something is not flowing correctly. And that's when you have to trust the actor to tell you the, the what, what is the right truth for them. Unfortunately, the actor can't change a line from Shakespeare. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, they do? <laughs> Sometimes they do. <laughs> and the audience, unless somebody's really sophisticated, the audience doesn't know. You mentioned uh, Cradle Will Rock, which tells the story of Mark Blitzstein's musical that was created for the uh, Federal Theater Project during the Depression. Uh, what was it about that story that you wanted to tell? I, when I heard that story, and it's a true story, I was really struck by this actress, Olive Stanton who was being told by her union and by the federal government that she could not perform this play. 
Because it was too leftist? No, well, with the government, uh, that was the issue. But with the union, it was that uh, it was a, the, the contract was canceled, and so they didn't have a producer, so they didn't have permission to go on stage. And here she is watching the composer, Mark Blitzstein, on stage because he didn't belong to a union, and he was going to do the whole play by himself. He was going to sing all of the parts. So he's up on stage. And Orson Welles introduces him, and uh, he starts into the thing, and it's her song. And that moment where she stands up in the audience and starts to sing her song, for me it wasn't a political act at all. It was her song to sing. The freedom to stand up and do what you have been rehearsing. And for me, that 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 was the, the genesis of that project. And then I started looking at the art world at the time, and Diego Rivera's uh, uh, painting the mural at Rockefeller Center, and, and uh, the, uh, the, all the other different um, artists that were being empowered by the Federal Theater Project. And well, it was during the Depression, FDR's president. And, and a visionary a whole... government that said, you know, yes, we're going to lift people up by you know, the public works, and we're going to create... Uh, you know, bridges, and we're going to create infrastructure, but at the same time, we have to lift up the spirit of the people, and that's where the artists come in, and we're going to re-employ unemployed actors, artists, all those beautiful murals we see all around the country that uh, are painted by WPA artists that live still today and, and, and enrich us. That was a government that had a vision, you know, they, they understood something about, uh, about culture and about the society itself. And the word socialism wasn't a dirty word in those days. Well, he was a dirty oh. communist, apparently. <laughs> FDR. Does uh, Credo... And by the way, the last you know, uh, 50, 60 years have been about killing every WPA project, every social uh, program. You know, there have been people that there are people that believe that FDR was, a, a, you know, a dirty commie have uh, been working for the last 60 years to kill every program that he ever... It started. Does Cradle Will Rock show how theater can be a force for change? Do you think theater can be a force for change? Because I would assume that most people go to a, a show knowing kind of where it is, so they would tend to go to things that already confirm their their beliefs. Mm, I don't. I don't. I don't ever respond well to that. You're preaching to the choir thing because. Oftentimes, the choir really needs a tune-up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's different kinds of entertainment. There's entertainment that distracts us. There's entertainment that says, ah, oh, that's fun, and you kind of forget it, like a good candy or a good ice cream. But there's also, I think, what, what people really yearn for is something that stirs them, that moves them deeply. I've seen the power of art. I see it on a regular basis. I see it when we're performing something and we have these discussions after the New Colossus, how people have a profound shift in the way they think about things, the way they feel about things. But I've also seen it in classrooms, in the, in the public school system in Los Angeles, where we do, we're in 15 schools, where we do programs with kids. And I see traumatized children turn into open, sentient, confident kids that are able to speak their voice and tell their story. That's a hugely uh, inspiring thing to witness. I see it in prisons all the time when we work uh, with our prison project. I see men transform themselves 
from uh, people that had shut off their emotions, that have shut off their connection to humanity, and are now building bridges with uh, to to be on the same uh, ground as former enemies. I've seen peace happen between warring factions because of the arts. And so I am a big believer in the transformative power of, of arts. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York, listener-sponsored, a non-commercial radio at 99.5 FM. My guest is Tim Robbins. We are talking about his career and also about a, a new project that he has called The Next Colossus. The New Colossus. The New Colossus, I'm sorry, which is... Um, touring the country. Uh, you won an Oscar for Mystic River, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. What was it like working with him? Aren't his politics quite different from yours? Did well, that ever come up? Well, I, you know, listen, part of the whole purpose of, of working with people is to find common ground, right? And um, for all, what whatever you might believe about him, he, there was a lot of common ground between them. First of all, he treats his crews and his cast with decency and humanity. He's a good person. He's right? a good director, too. And a damn good director. But during the course of that shooting, which was happening around the time when we were cooking up the, the Iraq war, we had conversations about that. He was against that war. So, you know, I, I always live for the unexpected. I always look, live for the bridge that you can build, the, you know, the common ground you can find with people. Uh, I'm not interested in, in, in being in an echo chamber where, you know, uh, I'm only around people that I agree with. There's no, you know, excitement in that. And, you know, this is uh, the great thing about going out on tour with the New Colossus is that we're going to find those people and we're going to have those discussions. And we're going to build bridges. We're going to, you know, find common ground. That exists out there. There's so much that we have that we share in common. You know, everyone wants a better future for their kids. Everyone wants to drink clean water and breathe clean air and have a healthcare system that doesn't bankrupt them. You know, there's so much, that, the common ground we can find. I think, you know, people in power are very clever and have been time immemorial a uh, strategy of divide and conquer. Get them fighting with each other and they'll never notice that we're ripping them off, you know. <laughs> the, <laughs> it's it, it, it works, unfortunately, but there is a, a way to find common ground with people. Just last year, you were in another political film, Dark Waters, which tells the true story of a lawyer who sued the DuPont Corporation for polluting farmland. And your character is a partner in the law firm that takes on the case. Yeah. How did you get involved in that project? Read the script. Uh, Todd Haynes, genius director I've always wanted to work with. Uh, and uh, Mark Ruffalo, a great, great actor who is not only a great actor, but a great person, friend of mine. And they asked me to come on board, and I said yes. And uh, it was playing a real person named Tom Turp, who did a very unexpected thing. You know, he, he was uh, one of the managing partners of a law firm who represented chemical companies in lawsuits against them. And uh, a family friend of uh, this guy named Rob Bellot, who Mark Ruffalo plays, came to him with a bunch of video cassettes documenting the the toxic nature of his farm and the death of his uh, his livestock and uh, mark mark's character takes it on and has to get approval from me to do it mm -hmm. and this is a very conservative uh, you know law firm and this man said well I see the evidence 
it's the right thing to do and winds up supporting this case making dupont incredibly angry at this law firm but wound up being right and you know this is what one of the another the way to bridge how where what are the bridges right what, what is the shared morality we have right and i want to believe that that telling the story of tom turp might inspire other people like him that maybe their politics are one way but there is a, a shared morality we have and if if this person can go against the his his firm and and say listen i whatever your politics are there is a right and there is a wrong and this is wrong and we have to support rob Bellat in this lawsuit you've worked with some pretty good actors mark ruffalo being a perfect example does that make life easier when you're working on a film that you can trust the the people you're working with oh yes please yes <laughs> uh, i'll bet there were times when you thought oh gee why is this person in this film or this play Mm, not very often. Um, everyone brings their own talent to the, to the thing. You know, there's some that are geniuses, you know, and that's a real joy to be able to work with someone that has that kind of uh, talent. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, you know, sometimes it's challenging, but, you know, it's part of the whole thing. You have been doing a lot of TV recently, acting in series like Castle Rock, Here and Now, and The Brink. And didn't you direct a couple of episodes of Treme, which was set in New Orleans? Yes. Do you think there's uh, much good work being done for TV and streaming platforms in, uh, as in film these days? Um, I find that the best scripts are coming out of there. Uh, it's, you know, the, the film industry, there's still some great films being made. They've made there's a couple last year that I really liked. Some uh, actors were concerned about so many films being made in Atlanta, considering some of the political things that have happened in Atlanta. That's really the producer's yeah. decision. You know, the actor really doesn't have much to say about that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, there's there are some good films being made, but you know, the, the scripts are really the key. They've always been the key, and uh, maybe cinema is getting farther and farther away from doing stories that about you know, a serious subject matter that adults want to see, and maybe that's the reason why so many uh, of the actors are moving towards the streaming platforms to tell their stories. Everything has changed. When TV came along, there were a lot of actors who refused to work in it because they were artists. They were working in films. And now it seems like TV is where some of the the real chances are being taken and some of the meatiest roles are, are being made available. Yeah, that's true. You've uh, testified before the California State Senate on the value of arts programs in the prisons. Um, were they were they cutting the budget? They had eliminated the budget for arts and corrections uh, about two years into when we started working, and we had never received any of that funding. Uh, we basically said to the wardens at the prison we were working at, just give us the key in and out. We don't need funding. We're going to do this on a volunteer basis. And continued our program through the, that period of time. About uh, six, seven years ago, um, did some advocacy up in Sac Sacramento to try to reinstate funding for arts and corrections. And we were able to uh, get $1 million put back in the budget the first time. Uh, and that was only possible, by the way, talk about building bridges, uh, because uh, a gentleman from the prison guards union uh, 
had witnessed our program at Norco uh, uh, Correctional Facility in, in California. And he was watching a live feed from the floor of the Sacramento State Senate and saw two senators that he knew that were Republicans that were going to vote against this million dollars reinstatement of funding. Got them on, uh, texted them and said, we, the Correctional Officers, Officers Union, we want this. They changed their vote and it passed. And, you know, again... This is an unexpected alliance, but it's something that made change happen. And then within three years after that, through the work we were doing with the Department of Corrections, with the uh, Governor Jerry Brown, and with certain uh, state senators, we were able to get that budget up to $8 million. And so now the state of California has reinvested in rehabilitation with the arts. Have you kept track of any of the the uh, prisoners? Uh, have any of them wound up establishing careers in, in uh, acting? Well, we always tell them going in, we're not here to train you to be actors. First of all, there's too much unemployment. And second of all, if you're really good at it, we don't want the competition. <laughs> yeah, but you also don't want to have a high recidivism, well, recidivism we... rate amongst the people who have been through your program. That's the purpose of it. And that and and we have a, a, a big reduction in the recidivism of people that have been through the program. Eighty nine percent reduction in uh, in prison infractions. So the Department of Corrections knows that it works and has been very supportive and that's how we've been able to expand to thirteen prisons in fifteen yards. The new Colossus, uh, as we said, is beginning its North American tour next week, and uh, you listed the uh, the cities it's going to be performed in. Um, is there a website for people to uh, get that information again? Yes, at theactorsgang.com. dot uh, com. We have a, a this the tour dates uh, posted there, and uh, local theaters that, that it's going to be in. And do you uh, have any plans for? going further with this? Can you see a film in, in this project? I'm not sure if there's a film in it, but I do want to take some footage out on the road. I, w I do want to get some stories of the audiences onto film, and uh, we'll see if there might be a documentary in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you ha and also know what your next projects are going to be? Well, I've done a documentary called 45 Seconds of Laughter about the the... Uh, work that the Actors Gang does in prison. Uh, we went to the Venice Film Festival and to the New York Film Festival, and we're looking for distribution for that right now. I'm writing something that I want to direct. I'm looking for financing for, you know, the same old grind. I, 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 we're opening up uh, Dario Faux play next week, and then later in the year we're doing Cabaret at the theater in Los Angeles. So we're always busy. Uh, and, you know, the life of an actor... You know, it's like that joke, how do you make God laugh? Tell him what you're doing next week. Well, you know, how do you make an actor laugh? Yeah. And then <laughs> sometimes like... uh, actors have bad luck. My mother was an actress. Uh, she did a cigarette commercial for Benson and Hedges, and then they banned cigarette commercials on television. <laughs> she did a very famous uh, Alka-Seltzer commercial, Mamma Mia, that's a spicy meatball. But a month after that uh, began being shown, uh, a a mafia don complained that it was uh, insulting to Italians, and and so uh, Alka-Seltzer killed the campaign. It, uh, the only reason it survived was um, people like Johnny Carson would play it as one of the great commercials of all time. She was she was uh, cast to be Marlon Brando's wife in The Godfather, and the studio head said, 
nobody knows this woman. Let's get somebody with a, a better known, a better known actress. So it's a it's a rough life. It is a there. rough life, yeah. And uh, I've been very blessed, not good. Well, you are very. My mother was good, but you are very, very, very good. <laughs> Easy now. And I was. Uh, I'm. I'm just so pleased that you came by to talk about your various projects. Uh, good luck with the new Colossus. Thank you so much, Tim Robbins. Um, hope to see you again soon. Appreciate it, Leonard. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced this segment, and to Kevin O'Donohue and Asima Dimar of the Positive Mind Center for allowing us to use their first-rate studio facilities. If you're new to the show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we also encourage your comments. Uh, we hope you'll tune in tomorrow when wine expert Joshua Wesson will be taking your calls. And, and we'll see you then. And we hope that you will do your part to keep WBAI financially secure and afloat. Uh, one way to do that is by becoming a BAI buddy. Uh, you can do that by going to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. Uh, so you'll become a sustaining member for $10, $15 or more, uh, whatever you can afford. Uh, and that really will help WBAI um, sustain itself and resolve its financial problems. I hope you do it. <laughs>